Today, we want to talk about the Word of God. As you know, we've been talking about, uh, well, what we believe. Because what we're doing right now is a series, and maybe you're here for the first time since we started this series. And this series is, uh, the title of it is, With God We Live. And that's a, like a reversal of a slogan we have around here, which is, We Live With God. And the point of saying we live with God is saying that uh, as believers in Christ, God is with us. And it's about that relationship and how that relationship is reflected in our other relationships. And uh, so we live with God. We don't live for God or even under God. We live with God as believers in Christ. We've experienced reconciled relation to God and so we have fellowship with God and this is the basis of everything else now in this title though we turned it around you might notice it says with God we live this emphasizes something else altogether and that is it's only by being with God that you are in fact alive that God is the basis of life itself. And so a person who's alienated from God is dying. A person who's separated from God is, according to Scripture, dead in their trespasses and sins. But because we've been reconciled to God and a relationship has been restored to God, an active fellowship, we are alive with God. We live now, the subtitle of this uh, series is A Quick Start Guide to the Christian Life at International Bible Church. And what we're doing is we're trying to give like a review very fast. Like, I think there's maybe eight lessons. And we're going to tell you the whole thing of the Christian life in eight lessons. Well, you can't really do that. I mean, some of us are old and we've been trying to learn the Christian life for hundreds of years and we don't have it down. So obviously this is a quick review. But when we say what it means to be a Christian here at this church, this is what we're talking about. What it means to live the Christian life and what it means to be a part of this church is what we're talking about. So last week we had lesson number one. Oh, I should mention, we see this uh, progressing in steps from beliefs uh, to values to behavior and then to the coordination of our activity in the church. How is a person living in the transformation of the grace of God? is what we're aiming at. So last time we talked about God and man and we left ourselves in a rather bad position. Do you recall? Because we noticed that God is a trinity, that's really the most important thing. If, if you don't have that, everything else comes apart completely. The most important thing about a person we started last time the most important thing I can say about you is what do you say about God? 
when you think of God, what are you thinking? That's the most important thing anyone can say about you. And then we notice that God is a trinity, an eternal fellowship of persons, and that that is reflected in his creation of humanity. And humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation, his most important and significant creation. And humanity reflects that relational nature of God. And we are made to walk in fellowship with God and by walking in that fellowship to express the character of God in creation to each other and to everything else around us. But things went wrong. And what happened when Adam and Eve sinned is we separated ourselves from the source. And because we're separated from the source, we are, in fact, dead. And, of course, a dead person is not capable of solving his or her problem. So that's where we left out last time. That's pretty horrible. People in our natural condition, uh, related to Adam and Eve, in our natural condition, we are separated from God, alienated from God, dead in our trespasses and sins, and that means we are not able to solve our own problem. You could be good, good, good all your life and your problem would not be solved. Because even good behavior that's done in a condition of separation from the life that is in God, the Bible has a name for this. It's this, dead works. The scripture says even our righteousnesses stink to God. So that's a fairly desperate condition. Now, the thing about God is, he did not leave that situation alone. And so God has provided for our revival, for our resurrection, for our reconciliation to him. And in that restored fellowship to him, we have new life. This is what the Bible calls being born again, being reconciled to God, or we might use the expression eternal life. Jesus said in his prayer in John 17, this is eternal life. I wonder what he said when he defined eternal life. Here's what he said, that they might know you. <laughs> Heavenly Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, the very nature of life is knowing God, is walking in fellowship with God. So God did something about all this, and that's what we're going to look at today. We're talking about the Word of God. 
And we have three headings, the Bible, and really the second two headings are sort of subcategories of that heading, which are law and gospel. So let me ask you, you're a Christian, how's your Bible reading? How's your Bible reading? I'd like you to estimate in your head, don't say anything out loud, don't raise your hand or anything, but I'd like to estimate in your head what percentage of the people in this room do you think have read the whole Bible? I'm not telling you my estimate. That would be rude. Well, let me ask you. It's possible, you know. I know. Here's how I know this, because this has been my experience. I've been, uh, you know, forced to read, memorize, study the Bible since I was a child. Here's something that happens to me from time to time. I read the Bible. I check the box. And I have no idea what I just read. Has that ever happened to you? I, this can happen to me in any assigned readings. Any re like this happened to me when I was in the university and they said, read this book, read this many pages. I would go read the pages and I have no idea what that said. Sometimes I would read a page and I think, Wait, I need to read that again. And because, for some reason, because I have to do it, I don't understand what I'm reading. Here's something weird that happened to me. Like, I was assigned some book in high school, you know, some novel or something to read. I read it for school. I don't know. Didn't really take. Then some years later, I just read it because I wanted to. Suddenly I understood everything. I don't know how that works, but that's how it works for me. Maybe it doesn't work the same way for you. Have you ever had that experience? You read the Bible and you don't know what it says. When I was a kid, my parents made us do this thing called Bible Memory Association. And you do what you do is every week you'd memorize like six or eight verses from the Bible. You'd memorize them and say them word for word. And this was back when we only had the King James Version in English. So all the these and thous and all that actually made it probably easier to memorize. But you'd memorize it, you'd say it word for word, here's, and then you'd get prizes for doing this. And I think, hmm, I could memorize those verses, I could say them to you, but I could not tell you anything about what they were intended to communicate. Now, I'm still glad I did that, though, because years and years later, even now, even today, my parents serve you, having made me do that. So I'm glad they did it. And I know a lot of Bible today because of it, but yeah. It's possible to read the Bible and not get much out of it, isn't it? What is the Bible? Let's think about it. The Bible's the Word of God. That's what we say. And here's what we mean. I've printed all this outline in your bulletin so you can uh, have it later. It includes a bunch of scripture references in case you want to look those up. 
Here's what we say about the Bible. The Bible is inspired by God. And so, because it's inspired, it is inerrant. That means it has no mistakes or errors. And authoritative, that means whatever it says is to be believed in all it affirms to be true. That's what we say. The Bible's inspired by God, and we would say this. The Bible is inspired by God down to the very words chosen by the apostle or the prophet so that the words that they wrote are, in fact, the word of God. They're also the words of whoever wrote them. But the Spirit of God worked through the process. The Bible describes this as uh, the Spirit of God carrying along the writer as he wrote so that the words of Scripture are utterly reliable and true in every respect. That's what we believe. If the Bible claims something, that is for us to believe. It has authority. It's the Word of God. So <clears throat> the Word of someone has the authority of that person, right? So if I came to you and I said, in the, in the name of the king, I tell you, you must. Well, if that's really from the king, then I guess you must. But if I'm just making it up, then it's not really in the authority of the king. What we say about the Bible is it is in the authority of the king. God himself, in the hand of the writer, is speaking these words. And so they are true. Because it is not possible for God to be untruthful. Here's a few more things we would say about the Bible. The Bible's a story. That's an important thing to notice all by itself. Did you notice that the Bible is a story? <laughs> it is not a theology. Except in the way that a story is a theology. The Bible contains some theology. Like if you read the book of Romans, that is a theology. But if you read the whole Bible, what is it? It's a story. It's the history of everything. It's the story of what? What's in the story? Well, it goes like this. Creation, fall, redemption, resurrection. That's the story. God made all things. God made man at the top of all things. Man rejected God, sinned against God, and fell. But God redeems us in Christ, and we look forward to when Christ comes, the resurrection. Well, and sometimes people put another word on the end of this, the consummation, that is, you know, the eternal condition of all things. That's the story. That's a very quick outline. You could memorize that outline. It's a good idea. You ready? Creation, fall, redemption, resurrection. 
The Bible is all is is the story of God with us also. God with us in Jesus Christ. If you ask the question, in the story that is given in the Bible, who's the main character? The answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the focus of the whole Bible. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, Jesus is the focus of the whole Bible. When God said, let us make man in our image, you know, he said, let's make the animals according to, same expression, according to their kind. God had some sort of cat model when he made cats, some kind of plan for a cat when he made a cat. And cats reproduce after their kind. And so do uh, so does everything else after its kind, after its kind. In the first chapter of Genesis, you keep saying this expression, after their kind, after their kind, after their kind. So God made this after its kind, and that after its kind, and this after its kind, and that after its kind. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Who's the pattern? Cats for cats, God had a cat pattern. For cows, God had a cow pattern. Who's the pattern for us? God himself. And then when you read in the New Testament, it says, speaking of Jesus, the man, the Messiah, the eternal Son of God, it says, he is the image of God, the invisible God. How does God become visible? The answer to that question is Jesus Christ. Before man fell into sin, God's plan was a history focused on the cross of Jesus Christ. It says in Ephesians that before he made anything, he chose to save us from sin in his son. Well, this is God we're dealing with, so, you know, we're going to run into some things we can't quite figure out. But the story of the Bible, the whole Bible, from the first page to the last, is the story of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> it's a story of predestination in Christ. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, it says in Ephesians chapter 1. It's a story of promise. The Lord speaks to Abram and says, I'll make you a great nation, and from that nation I will bless all the nations. That's a promise. And the whole Old Testament is the unrolling of that promise. Where's the promise fulfilled? First Corinthians says, in him, that is Jesus Christ, all. The promises of God are yes and amen. Who's the focus of all the promises of the Old Testament? Jesus is.
Jesus said, <laughs> you know, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me because Moses wrote of me. The focus of the whole Bible from beginning to end is Jesus. The predestination promise, the incarnation. When we talk about celebrating Christmas, we're talking about the fact that God, the Son, the eternal Son of God, became one of us to be with us and to bring us back into fellowship with God through his righteous life. You realize there's only been one human being in the history of all humanity who has actually lived a righteous life. Only one. That is Jesus. Scriptures declares this quite plainly. No one seeks after God. There is none righteous, not even one. Jesus is the only human being that has ever lived a sin-free life. And because he lived that life, he lived that life for me and for you. And his death is therefore a substitute for me and for you. And the Lord receives, the Father receives that sacrifice from the Son. And he approves the sacrifice, which we know because of the next thing in this story, which is the resurrection. And then Jesus ascends. He doesn't die because he can't die anymore. He died the one time. He can't die anymore. And he has ascended and he is at this moment seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is according to many different passages in the Bible, Ephesians 2, Hebrews 1. He's seated at the right hand of God, interceding for his people before the Father. Jesus always stands between me and the judgment of God. And every moment I sin, and I sin almost all the moments, I am not a perfect person. I'm pretty sure even now my preaching is messed up by bad motives and all kinds of weird human things. And it's a miracle of God that he can use a preacher like me to communicate his word to his people like you. Which he does. But... Uh, how do, I, how do I stand in the presence of God by standing behind Jesus? That's the only way. And Jesus right now is there interceding for me so that every time I fall short of the true exhibit of the image of God in this world, every time I fall short of that, Jesus is there to say, I've got that covered. The cross has that covered. There is no, therefore, the scripture says, no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. All the judgment for my sin was poured out on him on the cross, and therefore I am absolutely free from judgment. No condemnation. That's the story. Oh, so he's there interceding for me, but he is returning. And when he returns, we will experience the resurrection he experienced. We'll say some more about this next time. And so we will enter into the kingdom of God in uh, resurrected bodies, no longer subject to sin or any of its consequences. Suffering will cease according to scripture. So that's the story of the Bible. It's the story of creation, fall, redemption, resurrection, and it's the story of God with us, deciding, (laughs) deciding, promising, coming, living, dying, rising, ascending, interceding, and returning. That's a great story. Now, one more thing I want to say about the Bible. The Bible contains everything we need to know. Oh, I have to keep talking, though. Because I'm not sure the Bible contains everything I need to know about everything. I need to know how to operate my phone, and I can't find anything about that in the Bible. But the Bible tells me everything I need to know to live in right relation to God. Everything. We do not need to add any information to what the Bible reveals if what we want to know is how can I be restored to life in Christ by faith in God's grace in Christ and by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says everything I need for that. And by the way, in a certain sense, that is everything. I mean, compared to that, needing to know uh, how to operate my phone is not a big need. I don't know how they did it, but for many, many centuries, people didn't have phones. And they still needed to know God in Christ through faith. And they still had everything they needed to know about that in their Bibles. Well, if all of this is true about the Bible, these are the things we believe and teach here in this church about the Bible. Well, I want to lay a bit of a guilt trip on you then. You reading the Bible enough? I generally hate guilt trips. But here's the thing. You cannot possibly be reading the Bible enough if this is true. If you were reading the Bible 24 hours a day, every day, it wouldn't be enough. You need this stuff. You need it badly. You need to know the great grace of God that's revealed to us in the Bible. And you need to know everything in there. You know... Did you know that in the book, let me see, chapter and verse, 
For Micah 3.12, a hard surface turneth away stains. Have you heard that one? Did you know that one? That's not in the Bible. Hezekiah 17.3. Hezekiah 17.3. Whithersoever thou goest, there shalt thou surely be. There's not a book in the Bible named Hezekiah. Did you know that? There is a book in the Bible named Obadiah. Got any idea what it says? I'll tell you right now, I have no idea what it says. I know it's in the Old Testament, and it's one of the small prophets. But there's something in the book of Obadiah, according to Paul in 2 Timothy, that is profitable. Profitable. That means it yields a benefit. It would be good for me to know what is in Obadiah in one way or another. Hmm. You know, you can't possibly get enough of this word of God's grace in Christ. I want to encourage you to read the Bible. You know there's no rules, though. You know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, regular people would not have a Bible they could read. We didn't have Bibles every day people could read until about 500 years ago when they invented printing. Before that, every copy of the Bible was written out by hand. Isn't that amazing? And we would be lucky here in this church to have a copy among us all. There are parts of the world today where that is still true. Where in a church, one Bible is there. You have nearly every published version of the Bible available to you on your phone all the time. In whatever language you speak. Literally, whatever language. There is not a language spoken in this room that is not available. A copy of the Bible, accurately translated from the original text, available to you at every moment of every day. That's a great advantage. Do you take advantage? How's the guilt trip coming? You feeling pretty guilty now? That's good. Sometimes guilt is good. Let's talk about law. We don't have much time, so I got to talk fast. You see, in the Bible, there's some things in the Bible One of the ways we can categorize what's in the Bible is in these two categories, law and gospel. Now, I already told you the Bible as a general thing is a a narrative, we'd say, a story. What happened and what does it mean? Uh, But also, along the way, you'll find law and gospel. Let me tell you a quick way to distinguish when you're reading law and when you're reading gospel. Because sometimes the Bible will move from one sentence about law to the next sentence that is gospel. 
This is especially true if you're listening to Jesus talk in the Gospels, because most of what Jesus taught was an exposition of the law. And every now and then, he'd throw in a little gospel. So here's how you can tell. When you're reading the Bible and you come to something you should do, that's law. And when you're reading the Bible and you come to something God is doing for you, that's gospel. Pretty simple, right? If it's something you have to do, that's law. If it's something he's done, that's gospel. Because what God does is the grace of God, which is give stuff away. Now, we need to say really quickly what, what the law is for. You know, you're going to read your Bible, and you're going to come to the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Law, law, law. Oh, my goodness, it's such a law. Do you know the name of the book, Deuteronomy? You know the meaning of that word? Second law. <laughs> because what's happening is they've been wandering in the wilderness, you know, and they had the law that was given in Exodus and Leviticus. They had that law for wandering around, and now they're coming to the promised land, and Moses says, hey, here's what you need, a new copy of the law for living in the land. So he repeated the whole thing. Have you read that? Those laws? I mean, aye, aye, aye. There's laws about what the priest will wear and how it's decorated. Oh my goodness. There's laws for sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice. You have, the priest has to give a sacrifice for the priest before he can give a sacrifice for the people. And Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that the sacrifice of Christ is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. What's the law for? Well, it serves three purposes. You ready? You're going to have to go through this pretty fast. First of all, it restrains evil and promotes goodness anytime anyone pays any attention to it. <laughs> this is the law, the sort of general use of the law for human society. The law says, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Don't tell lies on anyone. And because we know what God thinks on that issue, he thinks honesty is good and lying is bad, that helps us all be truthful, we think. So the law has this sort of general purpose. If anyone ever pays any attention to it, it helps us all to keep the evil down. The second purpose of the law is it drives us to our need for God's saving grace. This is what Paul is talking about in the book of Galatians when he says the law is a school teacher to lead us to Christ. Because as he's mentioned, no one is justified by keeping the law. In fact, if we read the whole Bible, we will learn 
that never was it God's intention for anyone to be saved by doing the works of the law. In fact, what it's designed to do is convict us. That's what laws do. If you go to the court and someone accuses you of a crime, the judge reads the law and he looks at your behavior and he comes up with a verdict. That word means a truth. And if you are found guilty, you are what we call convicted. And what the law does for every last one of us, it declares there is no one righteous, not even one. No one seeks after God. Condemned. One and all dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, that seems kind of mean. But that is the purpose of the law. What is, why would God do this? So that we will, in our conviction of our sinfulness, we will grab on to his provision, which is Christ. The Bible is very clear about this. God's saving grace. He proves our deficiency of righteousness and his righteousness in judging us. The law serves this function. So it helps us all to kind of keep the evil bad, the evil down. Helps us all to sort of suppress our iniquity if we pay attention to it. And it also convicts us. It's good to be convicted. Here's what I've noticed about myself, and maybe it's true about you. I'm perfectly capable of de denying my own badness. You know, Jonathan Edwards, a famous preacher of the Great Awakening in the United States, Jonathan Edwards said, no one ever imagines hell and imagines himself going there. I'm paraphrasing a little. We're perfectly capable of denying our own sinfulness. Jeremiah said this, the heart of man is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Do you realize the word of God declares there is nothing more deceitful than a person's heart? That means I'm capable of lying to myself and buying it. You ever do that? So we need the conviction. We need the righteous, holy standard of the living God that is so high, we look at it and we go, we better rewrite that or we're never making it. And so the Pharisees begin to rewrite it. imagining that it's designed to help them step up to God, which it is not. It is designed to show the impossibility of stepping up to God. And so we come to faith in Christ. I'll say more in a second about the gospel. The third function of the law is it serves this purpose 
Once I've trusted in Christ, it tells me what my opportunities are. You see the flip? You see the flip? Because if I'm in Christ, if the Spirit of God has given me the new birth and I am born again into the kingdom of God, I am indwelled by the very Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, I have the power. Now, I can. And so the law is changed from you better to look what you can do now. The law is changed from you haven't done this, you are doomed, to you are free in Christ, so have at it. From burden to opportunity. That's the third function of the law, the opportunity. It, affir- it informs the believer in Christ of his or her opportunities for righteousness by faith, from a position of grace. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. You can obey the commandments of Christ if you are born again. And so the law is there for that as well. There's law, and then there's gospel. The law is about what you should do, and the gospel is about what God has done. God rescues us from our desperate state through the incarnation, righteous life, atoning death, bodily resurrection, ascension, intercession, and second coming of the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He rescues us. He comes to be with us, and being with us, he draws us back into that eternal fellowship of the triune God, that joyful, glorious fellowship of God himself with God himself. We get to be included, and because we are in that again, we are alive again. That's the gospel. That's what God has done. How did he do it? He sent his son. It's all in John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten, his beloved son, his one and only. He gave to die a sacrifice for sin. He gave his his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him Whoever trusts in what he did instead of what I'm doing has eternal life. He restores in Christ. Jesus' death satisfies God's judgment and wrath against all those who trust in him. So he restores them to open fellowship with God, which is eternal life. God, the Bible uses the word, the English Bible uses the word, he's the propitiation for sins. He's the satisfaction. Our rejection of God deserves God's rejection of us. And so the Lord Jesus, the very Son of God, you remember what he said on the cross? You remember it? It's the 
it's the horror that he was sweating blood over the night before. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced our separation from the Father. I don't even know what to say about that. He went through that to restore us. And so in his resurrection, we are restored. That's the gospel. It doesn't depend on what I do. Not even the least bit. It's entirely based on what he did in every respect. The Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity are necessary for our salvation. Did you notice? The Father sent the Son. The Son died for me and for you and rose again. And the Spirit gives us new life. The Holy Spirit removes our spiritual blindness, according to First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians chapter 4. The Holy Spirit removes our spiritual blindness so we can see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If he doesn't remove our blindness, we, are, we can't see it. The natural person can't see it. But the Spirit removes our blindness, empowers us to trust Christ, indwells the life of every believer, enables us to address God as Abba, Father. Did you notice when we read about Abba, Father, that it was God gave us the spirit of his son, the spirit in us that cries out, Abba. This is how we are born again into the family of God. What God has done, what God has done, our salvation in every respect, from, from conception to completion, is a work of God in which we, I'm sorry, to which we make no contribution. We enjoy it. <laughs> That's what we do. We accept it. That's what we do. We don't buy it. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We just get it for free, because Jesus paid it all. Our salvation in every respect, from conception to completion, is a work of God to which we make no contribution, a gift we simply receive, as the scripture says, by grace you have been saved. Now, this lesson is about the word of God. And there's so much more. <laughs> There's so much more. You might notice that in the in the outline there in your bulletin, there's some lines that are underlined. Those are like areas where we thought, oh, you could go deeper here, or you could go deeper here. Some of those I've kind of gone a little deeper on as we've gone through this. But after the service in the Sunday school hour, after the coffee time, we have a discussion time. And uh, today, 
what I'd like to do at that discussion time, and I'm telling you this just as an encouragement, today we're going we're gonna to go over this handout I created. It's called How to Read Your Bible and Correctly Understand It. It's, I hope, a very practical lesson, and that's uh, sort of where the discussion probably go today. Also, in your bulletin today, we gave you a Bible reading plan, and there's a, just a few things I want to say about that. This plan, each day, it starts tomorrow. You ready? It starts tomorrow. You'll see the first date right here is October 21st. And it gives you two passages, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. The one from the Old Testament starts in Genesis and goes through. And the one from the New Testament starts in Matthew and goes to Revelation. The, if you follow this plan, you will have read the whole Bible in a year, by this time next year. Now, here's what I want to say. Remember, this is an opportunity, not a burden. You will never be punished for not reading your Bible every day. You might lose out because there's great benefit to reading the Bible, but it's not a law. Our goal is to increase our understanding of God's Word for the long-term transformative value of the Bible's message, the message of God's saving grace by receiving, by, received by faith in Christ by the Spirit. So there's a few things about this plan. First of all, it has a simple goal. I don't know if you've noticed this, but a lot of us read the Bible like it's a bottle of vitamin pills, and we're, you know, we read the Bible in the morning because we think that'll bless our day. We want to have a good day, so we start with reading the Bible. I don't know if you can hear the mocking tone in my voice. That's a very shallow way of reading the Bible. If that's all you're doing, please keep doing it because it's getting in you either way. But the the... The goal of reading the Bible is to understand the Bible according to the Bible. And if you come to the Bible with your question, what if it's not the question the Bible answers? Here's what most Christians do when that happens. They come to the Bible and they're reading Leviticus 17 or whatever and they're worried about what their boss is going to think when they make this presentation this afternoon. And they think, because I'm reading Leviticus chapter 17, it's going to help me with this presentation I have to make this afternoon. When li really, literally, Leviticus 17 has nothing to do with that. That is not the question that's being answered in that text. And so if I think when I read my Bible, I'm going to get the answer to today's problems, you know, what, you know what I do? I read my Bible and I make up stuff that it doesn't say. <laughs> In other words, that approach to reading the Bible might get you into trouble from time to time. So what is the approach? Here it is. Get more familiar with what is written in the Bible. That's all. 
That's all. When you do your reading of the Bible every day, according to this plan, you have one goal, and that is know something about something that's in the Bible that you didn't know until today. Because what is going on in the Bible is God is speaking according to God's agenda, not yours. Now, from time to time, you're going to read the Bible in the morning and you're going to learn something that's in the Bible that day and then later that day you're going to go, wow, that's what I was reading about in the Bible from time to time. But if you need it to happen every day, you are going to get disappointed. And when you get to Leviticus 17, you know what you're going to do? Quit. How do I know? Because I have quit 122 times in Leviticus chapter 17. That's how I know. But if my goal is simply to know what is in Leviticus chapter 17, it's pretty hard to fail that goal. I just want to get the Bible from the page into my head, and then the Spirit can take it from there. So, Bible reading plan, simple goal. You want it again? Get more familiar with what is written in the Bible. That's all. So pray, read the text, focus on two questions. Ready? What does the text actually say? That's the first question. What does the text actually say? The second question is to think about it just a little bit and ask this question. You don't have to answer it, just ask it. What is that doing in the Bible? That's the second question. Why did God put that in? You know the story of Esther, right? The story of Esther, you know, she's a princess, she's Jewish, but she's living in exile, and the king falls in love with her. Do you know that in the book of Esther, there's not one mention of God? Did you know that? Even when Mordecai sort of invokes God, he doesn't actually say God. He says, perhaps you were made for such a day as this. He doesn't say who. What's that doing in the Bible? You have any idea? I don't I could give you some ideas, but... That's the question. The first question is, what is in there? The second question is, what's that doing in there? So, third, third uh, or, or the fourth uh, practice is talk about it. Discuss whatever you read, saw, observed, asked, whatever, with somebody. That'll be good. That'll get it solid. This is an opportunity. If you care to take it, if you don't, that's fine too. Sorry, gone on way too long. Let me uh, pray. Father, thank you for not leaving us alone in our desperation, in our condition of alienation, but for reaching out to us, for actually being with us in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the great good news that is in our Bibles. Father, we pray that you would uh, empower us 
Give us a thirst for your word. Help us to notice how bad we need it and how good it is for us. Help us to just read it and get to know what's in there. Father, I just thank you for the fellowship of the body of Christ, for the joyful service we see from all these great servants of God. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the time of fellowship. We give you thanks in Jesus' name.